is Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Show, Making Your World Better. In this series, you're going to hear from real people with real stories that are trying to come up with real solutions to communities' biggest problems. In fact, questions we'll ask are, you know, what are the biggest challenges facing nonprofits? What are the biggest obstacles? What does it take to fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? These issues and more led me to create this show so that we can hear from those, again, with real stories to solve these big issues that we all deal with. So together, my hope is that we'll listen to this audio series and we'll learn how these folks are making their world better. Uh, today we have in the studio Steve Ott, Professor Steve Ott. Um, he is the University of Utah Masters of Public Administration Program uh, professor. He also is the founder of the nonprofit concentration there at the University of Utah. And then finally, he's the chair of the UNA, the Utah Nonprofit Association. I've had the privilege of being on the board with Steve. And not only does he have a wealth of experience, but he really has some real world experience when it comes to this issue of collective impact. He's, he's actually, you know, been involved with that. He knows it inside out, both from a academic side and then a practical side of actually being involved with organizations that are seeking to do collective impact, even before it was called collective impact. So what you're going to hear today on the show is um, uh, a little bit of, you know, not just the good things of collective impact, but perhaps maybe a hybrid of that, which he calls pays, pay for success, uh, basically taking a business model and applying it to a nonprofit and trying to solve the issues of a particular niche or need in a community. The other thing he really talks a lot about, and it makes sense because of his role as a professor, is the management side to nonprofits and how um, he has found that there is some uh, lack of management training for a lot of nonprofit professionals. And so the good news is there are solutions for that. Um, he, with his professor you know, role, and then, of course, with the University of Utah, and I understand that BYU has a school and an emphasis on nonprofit leadership. There are tools, there are schools you can go to, there's classes, there's seminars, the UN. A, the Utah Nonprofit Association, also provides seminars. So the bottom line is uh, he talks about how there are some management weaknesses, but there's an ability to go get training so that you can bring that back and make nonprofits more successful. Because in his mind, as he'll talk, he'll tell a little bit more about the specific role of a nonprofit and the benefit nonprofits bring to our community. So I think you're really going to enjoy hearing more about his story and listening to all of his years of experience. So thanks for listening to this episode of Making Your World Better. Steve, it's great to have you today. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. Well, we've had some fun talking about this a little bit. Um, so as an educator and someone who's very involved in the nonprofit world, um, I want to start out with a very big question. And I realize we only have so much time today, but I thought it'd be good to at least get your take on, as an educator and as a board member of the UNA, um, what in your opinion is the most important role a nonprofit serves in our community and in our state? Uh, some of your audience will accuse me of, of being a university person who won't be pinned down to a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like but, a professor. Right. But this is, this is an important question because there is no single answer. Okay. For example, Think of what would happen if we did not have nonprofits in our autism community, developmental disabilities, intellectual challenge community. In other words, delivering services nobody else delivers. Government okay. doesn't do those services anymore. Uh, that's so, entirely the nonprofit. So it, it's actually making the community itself better through that route. But secondly, 
you can make a very strong argument, which I do, that they are nonprofits in many ways are the glue that hold a community together. Ah, the they, glue. Okay. They yeah. think it's that important. Yeah. They reach across between for-profit businesses, government, um, and the nonprofit world. And in addition, then, reach across different groups within the community through their board members, through their volunteers. You get people together who otherwise would never meet and strengthen communities. And I think we sometimes really underestimate uh, how important that one is. So it's a, first of all, the, the nonprofits that I'm hearing you right, they find those niche areas of need that no one is serving. And then in the process of doing that, they become a unifier for the community between government agencies, universities. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I like it. And, and our jargon term for that is social capital. While they're off doing good works, they in the same time learn who they can trust in the community, who they can turn to, where they turn to for help, so forth. Um, I like it. And that creates social um, capital is what you're saying. Correct. Correct. Um, and then a third one, which I really value and maybe other people don't quite as much, um, but I think they should, is they're a voice for the, they're an alternative voice to the official line of what's going on in the community. In other words, they're social critics. Uh, okay, talk about that. What is it? Do you have an example in your mind oh. of a good example? Yeah, that you've either been on the board with or been sure. involved with. All kinds of them. yeah, all kinds of. Them. Mm -hmm. um, but for ex any advocacy group, you know, right. as an example. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. But but I think one of the most dramatic, you know, is back mm -hmm. in the '80s, government would not touch HIV/AIDS. Ah, they were afraid to go near it. It was mm -hmm. stigmatized. Mm -hmm. It was the nonprofit world that led out and uh, started into it and then government after kind of followed, followed their lead yeah that's a yeah. great example yeah so i you know again i only gave you three but as i mentioned to you in the beginning when i teach a course on nonprofits, that's often three nights of class yeah. yes thank you for that quick summary though because i think just as the the listeners here there is so much to nonprofits, and i think it, my hope is actually uh for those who are listening to this that maybe you ought to consider taking a class with steve or at the university <laughs> of utah truly because you're right we're getting just skimming the surface today on some of these big issues but if you take a class with you you could really go into depth into the impact that nonprofits have you bet and uh, how they can get trained so you've experienced obviously as a chair of the una and you've been involved with many nonprofits. What in your mind are the traits of a healthy nonprofit? The standard answer to that, which has a lot of validity but not enough, is probably criterion number one is a nonprofit that has close to a year worth of operating reserves available to itself. So uh, that you if, start with though the finances yeah, right off the bat. Yeah, okay, right off the bat. And why do you start with that? Because they're the biggest challenge to nonprofits in Utah and probably across the country. Um, you know. Stop and think. Their primary sources of income are, you know, depending upon what types they are, are contracts with government, mm -hmm. private donations, foundation grants, um, corporate gifts, and so forth. When the economy goes down, the demand for their services go up and their income goes down. It's a really good point. So they've got to, it isn't that they're um, in danger going out of business. But if they're going to serve the way they really ought to, they've got to have reserves. Mm -hmm. And you feel like a full year's worth? Pretty close. Okay. Pretty close. Excellent. But then I, I would really add on top of it, um, to me, which are much more um, intangible, openness, transparency, 
um, connectedness with other organizations in the community, not in a silo, mm -hmm. not, not walled off. By the way, the Utah Nonprofits Association has a code of ethics that it requires all members to sign. And that code of ethics is really a statement of what's a healthy, good, well-run nonprofit organization. That's a good point. It's nice to have a standards, isn't there? You know, particularly, I think, like from a donor's perspective, if they give to a nonprofit, they want to make sure that nonprofit's, you know, stewarding their money well. And so having a code of ethics, like you say, very, very important and a great role yes. for UNA to have, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, that's available on the Utah Nonprofits Association website for anybody who wants to look at it. That's a great point. I'm yeah. glad you pointed that out. Right. Good. So code of ethics, a good solid financial background, and then openness and transparency. transparency. That's a big... Yeah. Now, how does that look? Um, I'm thinking now maybe uh, an ED is listening or someone in one of your classes. Uh, just describe that or define that a little bit more. Transparency and openness, how, that's a squishy term perhaps. What does that look like in, when it's played out in a nonprofit? Well, I think the best example, if they don't have their annual report to the federal government, if they're 51C3 posted on their website, they aren't transparent, they're hiding. Love it. And if they aren't okay. hiding, they're giving, they're leading people to believe they're hiding. Got it, okay, Yeah. very good. Okay, excellent. Anything else on that? Before I know I, we got lots of questions. Well, I'm gonna, um, yeah, I could say the next, um, go ahead. Okay, so I, I told yeah. him we, we have a limited time. Yeah. So, um, all right, so we've got traits of a healthy nonprofit. Now, uh, here's the, I know it's kind of an odd question perhaps, but um, for example, in Park City, we have over, there's close to 85 nonprofits uh, that would be considered from the Park City Foundation to be uh, 501c3s that have a legitimate you know, mission and somewhat of an organization. So you think about, just as one example, that's a, a lot of nonprofits in a small population area. Uh, Full-time residents in Park City proper, it's just around 9,000 people. So my question is not just for Park City, but then you look at the state of Utah and there's hundreds of nonprofits. Thousands. Okay, they're even better, thousands. So do we have too many nonprofits or do we need more? What, what's your take on that? Um, first, I gotta ask you some questions back that I won't ask. Oh yeah, okay, you turn it back around, all right. Okay, first, where in Utah? Mm. The situation is very different in a Fillmore, a Delta, than it is in Salt Lake City or Park City. Ah, great point. Different worlds. Second, what type of nonprofit? Are you talking in the performing arts? Are you talking in programs for people with uh, mental illness? Um, the answer is very different depending upon, uh, I'd almost draw a two by two table of where and in what areas. Got it. Let me come at it also a little different way. I th when people contact me, which happens fairly often, saying, I want to start a nonprofit, how do I do it? I bet they do, yeah. Almost always, they're, they're going into an area where there are already too many nonprofits doing it. Got it. I urge them not to start one. Go volunteer with one, spend some time, really learn the ins and outs, what the need or need isn't, and then decide at that point if they should be starting one. The failure rate on new startups is very high. Yeah, do you have a percentage offhand by any chance? Is it like 30%, is it 50%, is it 75? I, uh, again, uh, I'm dealing on old data. Okay, got it. But mm -hmm. but um, 10 years ago, the last time I really saw a yep. survey on that, mm -hmm. uh, it was close to 50% in the first four to wow. five years. Wow, in the first yeah. four to five years, okay. So half and of remember, them don't make it. People who want to start a nonprofit come at it from the heart. 
Exactly. And the heart doesn't lead to good management. <laughs> That's a great point, right? Yeah. You may have all the passion in the world, Correct. but you don't have a good plan. You don't have perhaps the, uh, the wherewithal or the training to know what it takes to be a leader. So. Correct. Okay, so would you argue then, say, we'll just throw, you gave some good examples, in the rural, more rural areas of Utah, do you think there's more need for nonprofits or less, say, for community organizations, humanitarian nonprofits? I would say uh, in the human services and uh, related areas, I would say that in general, your, your rural areas are in much greater need. Uh, the problem is you don't have enough people either on uh, the supply side, if you will, or the demand side to be able to support them. So they right. need to go into alliances with other communities. That often ends up in controversy. Got it, okay. It's interesting you say that. You know, one of the things we do, we reach out to um, uh, the Go Shoot Native American Reservation, which is just south of Wendover, and it's, it takes a long time to get there from Park City. But we've learned that we've actually now uh, partnered with a, a very small nonprofit, um, uh, and actually it's a food pantry slash thrift store in Wendover. And a lot of the Go Shoots we learned as we started working with them, uh, because on the reservation there's limited jobs, Right. And there's no middle school or high school, so they actually have to go to Wendover for middle school and high school. So some families move off the reservation temporarily so the kids can be there. Yeah. So anyway, all, a lot of these needs actually move off the reservation to Wendover. And so we've worked with them. But you're right. There is not the financial base to support right. a nonprofit on its own in Wendover. Um, but the need is quite high. Correct. So what would you say, like, what would be the, a solution for that? Is that um, what would uh, someone who is eager to start a nonprofit, what would you say, hey, go get your funding and then go out to Wendover or extend, go within the United Way and extend it out to Wendover? What would be a good model in your mind? Um, first, I would want to know how many of the go shoots there are and so forth. Um, I would never question the need. I've spent quite a bit of time working on Indian reservations. Yeah, so you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know very well. Um, my answer would be, if you're from here and you think you're going to go to Wendover and solve the go shoots problems, you're an arrogant SOB. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a reality check right there. <laughs> um, I like that honesty. Yeah. Uh, I really do. Yeah. Um, but the answer would need to be, you would need to have community support from businesses in Wendover uh, or West Wendover yeah, or right, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you would need non-resistance from government and hopefully participation. Uh, but again, your community... For example, if, if assuming the go shoots are coming in, they are not contributing to the economy and they are drawing out. So you may have antagonism in the government right. uh, to providing services. So again, I would suspect um, you need to find outside financial sources. That's a really good point, and I think, uh, yeah, I see that personally, you know, with what the nonprofit I lead here at the Christian Center, and I see that across the board, that particularly in the rural areas, it is a much, it's a much more difficult place to provide the services that are needed, uh, and then make those partnerships with government organizations that are already swamped Correct. and uh, understaffed. So, well, that yeah. leads to, yeah, go, anything yeah. else on that before we move no, to your role? I oh. think that's, yeah. Great, great advice. Yeah. Um, okay, in your role then, um, and I would say you have multiple roles. You wear many hats. But as a professor, specifically in the university system, now granted you're the chair of the UNA, which is also puts you in a very interesting position for this question. But what have you seen to be the biggest challenges facing Utah's nonprofit sector today? What do you see are those um, biggest challenges? We've already alluded to some of them. <clears throat> I think far and away, in my experience, the biggest thing is not enough money coming in 
And when I say non-professional management, I don't mean you've got to have a master's degree or something. Okay. But I mean really know how to run an organization. Mm -hmm. And that not only is there not enough money coming in, but it's not always uh, managed and spent the, in the best ways. And I think the third one is lack of clear focus on mission. Interesting. Okay, mission. That as um, particularly uh, when resources are tight for a nonprofit, um, that what you'll find is they, the word is mission creep. Um, but typically, they'll see a source of money that is not directly in line with their area of competence, but they need the money, they know the service is needed, and they go do it, and they don't know how to do it. Got it. But and then it dilutes what they were originally doing in the correct. first place. Yeah. And usually ends up, sooner or later, also setting up competition for the money they had originally that was limited, um, and it just hurts the organization. But so a lot of it's vision, a lot of it's money, a lot of it's mediocre management. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I don't mean people are mediocre but the management right. skills. Right. Yeah. And I know you did not come on the show to, to do a plug, but I thought this would be actually, because I'm learning more about what you provide. So say someone's listening and, and wants to get more training. They know they need more training. What does your program provide? Well, let me talk about alternatives to, to yeah. my own first. Okay, sure. Um, you've got a number of training programs um, and credentialing programs on board management, uh, financial reporting, and so forth through the Utah Nonprofits Association. Very low cost. Uh, some of them electronic, move around the state, really um, a lot of sources uh, of good information and good way to strengthen your staff. The University of Utah's Continuing Education Division has what they call the Nonprofit Academy of Excellence. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they had for a long time, which is just um, in terms of sophistication, depth, and length, just one step more sophisticated than U Utah Nonprofits Got it. Association. Right. Okay. For those, uh, I would say, particularly who are working in nonprofits, um, it may not be evident just on the surface by names, but I, I would ask them, I, I would urge them to really consider uh, a Master of Public Administration. Mm -hmm. um, people don't realize the world has changed so much that now um, across the country, 55% of the Master of Public Administration graduates are going into nonprofit organizations, not into government. So that's fascinating, interesting. And what do you think that is? Is there just less jobs in government or they're not as fulfilling perhaps? Um, much more the former. Okay. Um, that what used to be delivered, services used to be delivered by government managers, uh, service delivery people, in general now tend to be contracted out into particularly the nonprofit sector, but somewhat also into the for-profit. And you're saying that's not just Utah, that's across no, the board. across the country. In our country, got across it. Across the country. You stop and think, um, again, when we talk human services, and by that I'm, I'm talking broadly, um, again, uh, intellectual challenges, mental health, autism, um, you know, rape recovery, I mean, you just keep going. There is no delivery ca capability capacity left in government. Got it. So there's more action in the nonprofit sector, even though their funding tends to come from government. Mm -hmm. As it is ironic, isn't yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, very so much still so. supported. Um, but anyhow, um, so the Master of Public Administration program, uh, and we do have a specific concentration in nonprofit management. At the last, 
I heard, which was last fall, we're offering typically um, 13 different courses on managing nonprofit organizations uh, in a two-year cycle. That's uh, impressive. I think it's way more than most people would actually correct. imagine. This is everything from managing volunteers, how to run a board, um, you know, I mean, just human resource Full gamut. Full mm -hmm. gamut. Um, the BYU um, Romney Institute of Government also has specialization in nonprofit organizations. I didn't realize that either. People. Okay. Are those uh, the primary two places in Utah, BYU and University of Utah, or does Utah State or um, Westminster have anything? Westminster has a, pro, a master's degree, I believe it's called in community leadership. Okay. Got and it. they do some nonprofit in there, but it isn't directly on it, but it's close. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. I know we've got still some more to cover. So yeah. now you've, you've spoken about some of the challenges. There's been a lot of buzz about this collective impact, and I know it's a loaded term, and it's a misunderstood term. Um, and so let's speak about that a little bit. For those who are listening, uh, collective impact was introduced by John Kania and Mark Kramer, uh, kind of around the 2011 uh, timeframe in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, they wrote about how key actors from every sector in a community must join together, in their opinion, in a disciplined, collaborative effect in, in um, uh, motion if they want to solve entrenched problems. Um, now, again, there's been debate about exactly what collective impact is, how does it relate to collaboration, and then you've had an interesting angle too, this idea of money for success. Yeah. So talk about maybe the double-edged sword of this collective impact idea, and, and it's somewhat, I don't know if you wouldn't call it popular in nonprofit worlds, but a lot of people are feel like they need to get involved with collective impact so speak to that a bit sure and again uh if we had two nights i bet this yeah. is another big yeah. question this right? is a big one yep um i think it's best if i do it by example with the salt lake uh um chamber uh, i'm sorry united way perfect example. Uh, great again several years ago in fact close to a decade ago uh before the stanford people mm-hmm they came to the realization that for all the millions of dollars they would given out to uh, community organizations, that they could not sit back and show many impacts where their money has made a really significant difference. Okay. They decided to become a leader across the country and is across the country now. So they made a strategic decision to do that, to Correct. shift gears a bit. And again, uh, I may misstate some minor facts, but I don't think so. Um, they no longer accept grant applications from organizations. They accept um, a collective impact proposal from a community centered around a, what we call a sticky problem okay. in communities. So for example, poverty, illiteracy of uh, children at age six, um, um, recidivism, returning to jail among people with substance abuse. So very okay. specific problems that yeah. a community recognizes, hey, this is a sticky problem. Got it. And no one agency of government, nonprofits or anything, have full authority or the ability to solve it. Interesting. Okay. okay. So what the United Way is doing now is requiring the essentially the community that's involved in whatever the issue is must come together and agree to collaborate. Now, what makes it fun is, uh, and enticing, 
because believe me, collaborating across organizations is not easy. No, it's not, no. Okay. Everybody may agree on the goal, but they will disagree violently sometimes about the means to get there. And collaboration doesn't just happen because you decide you agree on a goal. Okay. So what United Way does, um, under my understanding, is they will accept a proposal from a community if it includes all the key actors. Okay. Once they accept them, they will assign staff to help them work together and get through the problems of learning to collaborate. And then United Way again is, is investing the staff, it. right? Correct. I'm sorry, I should have been clear on that. That's all right, yeah. But then they don't have to submit subsequent applications as long as they're making progress toward the goal. Okay. Or huh. the th problem is solved. Mm -hmm. Now, how well has it worked? Yeah. Because obviously this is controversial. Mm -hmm. When you stop and think about the organizations that just almost automatically would get 100000 200000 a year to support them, mm -hmm. um, no longer being eligible unless they're in a collaboration. Uh, and look at all, you know, I mean, you can, you can imagine how much our uh, disagreement. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, that's, on the surface, it seems like a great idea. Correct. But practicality-wise, is it Very, working? very difficult. Okay. Very difficult. Um, the, my understanding is there are six to seven major collective impact projects uh, that have been started, uh, and I may be underestimating it. Um, and verbally, um, and I'm speaking on behalf of United Way, which I shouldn't do, um, that more than half of them have are still going. Okay. Uh, and uh, I know they have been running ads. I haven't seen them since November, December, showing, for example, how many children in poverty now are are really have improved their education, are, are getting full meals a day. And, and so they're seeing some results and they're reporting on Correct. at least a few of them. Correct. But there are other communities that started into it and said, this is not us. We aren't doing it. And it pulled out. So the communities kind of rejected it, if you will, and the United Way say, okay, so we're going to pull our money and our staff out. and Got it. Okay. Yep, we'll go someplace else. Yeah. The pay for success. Yeah, so talk about that. Yeah, that's related, but uh, it's different. It, it incorporates usually. In other words, many of the collective impact projects are starting to use pay for success. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Pay for success is simply applying um, business tactics to solving human problems in which um, typically for-profit corporations are talked into loaning money, giving money, uh, so that nonprofits can, working in collaboration, can attack a major problem. And if it's successful, the government agency then that would have funded it pays back the for-profit corporation. Oh, really? The government pays them? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so talk about, again, it sounds like a good idea. Does this work? Is this a better approach or is there some drawbacks? This is a very uh, relatively new concept. Um, it has the advantage of being very appealing because it sounds very logical. It does yeah. on the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and by the way, the nonprofit, as I understand it, tends to get paid less or so forth if they don't accomplish their goals. Got it. Okay. Um, part of the problem... Uh, 
but again, many, many advantages of it. The biggest worry across the country, and part of it is uh, because of some negative experiences, where if you put that much incentive into it and you're dealing um, essentially with almost immeasurable, not measurable uh, outcomes, because it's all outcome. It isn't the number of services you provide. It's It's outcome-based. Outcome-based. Impacts in the community. and again, just I think to make it very um, simple, uh, people with Alzheimer's disease, what is an outcome? Mm-hmm. Great question. Great question. One of my colleagues who's involved in substance abuse is in a pay for success, his organization. Okay. I've said, what are your definitions of success? Three years of sobriety. Hmm, okay. Now, how do you measure that, I guess, is the question, right? You've got to go out and find them. Okay. All those kinds of things and determine somehow that they are. Now, is three years a good measure? Yeah, who says one year, two years, yeah. three Yeah. Two months? I mean. Uh, ten years. Mm-hmm. In other words, what are we really trying to accomplish? If right. they're all back drinking at four years. Good point. Then what have we accomplished? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the metrics and the measurements are the, really not clear. Yeah. Um, in many of the human services areas. Uh, some some are very easy. The more tangible the service provided, uh, the easier yeah, you and the more You fed so many people and, you know, yeah. through the Salt Lake Rescue Mission or whatever, right? Yeah, Got it. correct. Um, or the number of people who fed are then uh, five years from now, gainfully employed, uh, or uh, take, take um, uh, the housing first, approach mm-hmm, to chronic mm-hmm. homelessness right if five years from now they are employed and uh, earning benefits and so forth that's a success really neat really neat really what well, is interesting in that i know uh, you probably have seen this too uh, salt lake in utah as a state has actually gained some ground as a model a bit across the country for the homeless issue absolutely yes uh-huh. and is that a is that a pay for success model or is that more of a no. okay no it's not um at least not that I'm aware of. Got it. Okay. And then again, the last one I want to bring up, uh, which I don't want to use this to to completely um, put a negative cast on pay for success. But when you have that much money into it, the uh, incentive to game the system, if not lie, uh, really is right in front of your face. Because there's so much pressure to produce, to produce. outcomes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and again... Whether it whether gaming is dishonesty or just self delusion, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, but but there have been programs that have been found to have been fraudulently reporting. They they try to build the better ones try to build in checks and balances. Right. Um, another one of the universities in the state of Utah has been contracted and has been doing one that's been in the paper. Okay. Uh, so forth. Got it. So again, See. this is one. Uh, if you want to get into this kind of thing, you don't want a training program. You want to come to the, take a course at, yeah, at the, like in the master's Yeah, Really program. get into the, yeah. the inner workings of this because I, and I really appreciate you being on the show for this because I think it is one of those, we've interviewed some other EDs, executive directors on this issue. And I think you're one of the first that has brought up this, 
um, the other the pay for success model that's kind of um, maybe using the collective impact concept and then really taken to a different outcome, if you will, speaking of outcomes. So very, very helpful. Um, and now one last question I do want to ask with our time that we have left. Um, you're obviously in a university. You help train future nonprofit leaders, 55% of your graduates, you know, go to nonprofits, which is actually pretty wonderful. Um, By the way, we're not quite that high, but that's oh, okay, a national figure. That's a national figure. Sorry. We're, okay. we're 35, 40%. Okay. Yeah. But still you're moving that Very direction. Much. sounds like, yeah. which is, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so universities and nonprofits. So beyond in a sense, obviously you're kind of a unique spot in that you create um, classes and, and you're training leaders that eventually go into nonprofits. But in general, like University of Utah is an example, how do they seek out or maybe they don't or how do nonprofits on the flip side seek out the university to come together for some issue, whether it be HIV to homelessness to you name it. Uh, do you see successful models where universities and nonprofits work together? And if so, what does that look like? Or is it just impractical? That's just too different of a mission. Universities are as um, different internally um, as the nonprofit sector is. Okay. So if you ask me if a nonprofit approached a physics professor, I wouldn't know how to answer. Right, uh, okay. Management, uh, social work, public administration, maybe political science, communication. Um, those are areas where, where uh, in other words, more generally the social sciences. Right, they're um, more of a natural fit. Much more of a natural fit. But um, so there's still limits. People have the image that faculty, university faculty spend uh, three or four hours a week in, in class and the rest of the time they uh, sit at their desk with their feet up reading a book. Uh, <laughs> You're saying that's uh, not true? That oh, is not true. Just kidding, yeah. Interesting, right. The, the pressures um, are extremely heavy, yeah. not only to publish, but uh, over the last decade, really, um, to be soliciting grants because the percentage of the operating budget at a university that we receive from the legislature just continues to go down. Is that right? So the pressure for money, going right. back to what you said about nonprofits, is true for universities, sounds that's like. That's correct. So when a nonprofit, for example, would like a study done on what the need for services are or how many different corporations in the area are already giving to and, you know, those kinds of things, if they want it fast from a faculty member, the faculty member probably is already working, I would, on average, about 60 hours a week. Is that right? 60 yeah. hours? Uh, and by the way, that's over the summer usually, too with vacation got now it. again i i can't defend 60 except among my colleagues right got it um, okay but there are lots of areas um and i'll just mention a few of different types the university of utah has the lowell benyon community engagement center okay the last i heard 7500 undergraduate students a year are out in the community working vol as volunteers for nonprofit organizations. That's fantastic. 7,500. Yeah. That's Clo wonderful. Slightly over one-third, I believe, of our undergraduate student body. Okay. Uh, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a series of decade-long uh, networks being built up, collaborations, partnerships. 
Do you think um, that was driven more by the students wanting to serve or the university saying, hey, here's, here's the opportunities, let's create these opportunities, or is it a little bit of both? I think it's both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and as the university has made it very easy for students to do it, it just, it's almost a norm now. You know, you have friends who are doing it, and why aren't you? Exactly. If you're in a third, absolutely. Which I think is a very neat learning experience. It is not a one-way gift. It's also a learning experience back in that really develops the character. And by the way, also doesn't hurt on job applications and graduate school applications. Do they get uh, credit for that? Um, Okay. So that's just purely, yeah. Not at least, I don't think so. That you're aware of. Okay. I already mentioned the Utah, uh, excuse me, the uh, Utah University of Utah's um, nonprofit academy for, for excellence. Right. Um, this is where they draw very low um, by, and when I say very low pay, I don't mean the individuals are in low-paying jobs, but when they teach uh, for, in the academy for excellence, they get paid a very small amount. Okay. Right. Got to it. really develop. Um, competency in the management uh, of. Uh, so training is a big piece the university can come in you bet. to improve uh, nonprofit management. Correct. That then also, for example, uh, and I'll move from, from the Nonprofit Academy for Excellence into the manage, uh, um, MPA program, that also gives us as faculty entree into the nonprofits they go to work for Right. Which we then get benefit. We might place interns. We, you know, I mean, there sure. are all kinds of back and forth mm-hmm. uh, benefits that go that way. And another one um, that you may not be aware of, but 15 years ago, the University of Utah established the Univer- um, University Neighborhood Partnership. Oh, okay. And, yeah, explain uh, that. What's that about? Salt Lake City um, donated a building on the west side over on 900 West huh. uh, for a dollar a year is my understanding mm-hmm. to build bridges between the West Side community and the university. Okay, That expanded into how can you do this without involving um, help with nonprofits that are serving the refugee population Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Because uh, there of, is a lot of refugees that are settled in huge, the western area. Mm-hmm. Huge. Huge. Um, that has led to some departments at the university voluntarily uh, getting involved in uh, immigrant uh, housing areas. Excellent. Teaching uh, personal financial skills uh, and so forth. Now, who wins? Hmm. The recipient um, or the instructor? Both, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, sure. It's a win-win. Um, and as long as confidentiality and privacy sure. are protected, mm-hmm. could, could lead to research projects, mm-hmm. access to things. Um, but they're all sort. And by the way, I don't know. I I was shocked when I came here. When I think of a nonprofit, uh, uh, excuse me. When I think of a public university, I don't think of it being a nonprofit organization. But the University of Utah technically and legally 
is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, uh, that's, I have realized that and, and hospitals often are. Not yeah. all, but a lot of hospitals are. And I do think it really surprises people. Like, wait, wait a second. I pay a lot of money for tuition. But Correct. no, it's just the way it's structured. So there is yeah. a lot more, I think, that um, universities have in common with your typical nonprofit than I think most people realize. So yes. very good point. Yeah. Um, so I, again, there are lots of different ways. Um, the uh, Lowell Benyon Center also has community-engaged learning projects in which you don't, faculty usually set up a research design and go out and apply it. Your go-shoots are sick and tired hmm. of being researched. Community-engaged research, you sit down and talk with a group of people about knowledge that would benefit the, pop, the target population. Yeah and then work it into a research design that becomes a benefit to both the researcher and to the recipient. Yeah, much better approach sounds like, Correct. right? But uh, difficult to pull because mm -hmm. the community doesn't always want to go mm -hmm. where, where we know-it-all faculty want to go. I could see that, yeah. yeah. A little bit yeah, of a yeah. bias against yeah, yeah. the university professor that knows uh -huh. it all, so to speak. But we, again, I think I'm repeating myself. We put interns out into nonprofits. We put graduate assistants out into nonprofits. Mm -hmm. We did last uh, two last year. We put graduate assistants out, uh, solicited proposals. Um, a graduate assistant right now uh, is getting 14500 a year. Really? Huh. We, we require the nonprofit organization to pay 10%. Okay. That's, not, that's, um, that's reasonable. Yeah. And then we they pay They get the a great benefit. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's then, a great partnership. And by the way, it's also a way that um, a number of our students get jobs. I can see that. They're already kind of halfway there, sounds sure. like. Sure. So again, there are all kinds of ways. But as I was trying to say in the beginning, if it's research, that that is that can be done, but it's tricky. Got it's it. tricky. But that is the role of the university there where they're special. That's your specialty is research and to be Correct. able to do um, hands-on data that then further informs nonprofits for more effective you know, outreach and programs. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. this has been, I wish we had more time. It's wonderful to have you on the show again. Um, talk about, maybe it's a website perhaps, or if people are interested in the program, where would they go? Where would you send them online? Uh, to, for the MPA or yeah, for the, UNA? Both, yeah, uh, actually, let's do both. Uh, okay. MPA program first. The MPA, you simply go on Google. You can just Google MPA, University of Utah, or you go to the General University of Utah website, go to the A to Z directory, Got public it. administration, and it's right there. Takes you right there. Yeah. Perfect. And then, like I said, you know, Utah Nonprofit Association, UNA, we can go Same to their website. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Go to their website. It, it's open and accessible. You, uh, and again, I didn't want to use the words Form 990. That's the official annual reporting document. It's posted there. The bylaws, the officers, everything they do. They're there to help nonprofits. That's They're a resource, the, aren't they? That's mm -hmm. the whole purpose and the reason for UNA existing and why a number of us, including a lot of nonprofit directors, um, are on the board, volunteer with it. Uh, exactly. It's a neat organization. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've loved being on the board the last couple, couple of years now, and uh, it is. It's a great resource that I know up here in Park City and Summit County, I think there's a lot of both donors and nonprofit leaders and staff members that I have no idea about the UNA. So yeah. I'm glad you put a plug in for that organization. It is wonderful. And the goal, whole goal is to resource nonprofits so they're more effective Correct. in serving the community and meeting the needs. So 
Correct. Well, again, Steve, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege. Uh, come find out more about Steve and all he does. Uh, the University of uh, Utah's website, again, the Masters of Public Administration program, Professor Steve Ott. He's also the founder of the Nonprofit Concentration. And of course, he is the chair currently of the Utah Nonprofit Association. Steve, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I hope it's useful. Absolutely. Absolutely.